Hi, it's Fraser Myers here with a very exciting announcement. Spike's internship scheme is back. This is your chance to cut your teeth at the world's most exciting political magazine. We're looking for aspiring writers, podcasters, and video makers to join us for a paid internship program. You'll be working with us full-time here in London for a six-month placement, and there's the possibility of more work after it. You can apply for an editorial internship where you'd help us to produce our articles, features, and essays, or an audiovisual internship where you'd help us to produce our podcasts and videos, just like this one. To find out more and to apply, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash interns. That's spiked-online.com forward slash interns. Best of luck. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me this week, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on today's show, we'll discuss Joe Biden's bid for re-election and Diane Abbott's mad letter about racism. And Simon Evans will join us down the line to discuss the life and controversies of the late Barry Humphreys. So Biden has officially declared his candidacy for 2024 this week. He released a campaign video saying we shouldn't be complacent about the threats America faces to freedom, to democracy. Tom, this is kind of the classic Biden ploy. Mm -hmm. It's stick with me. Trump is a danger to the world. You know, democracy is going to disappear if you don't vote for me. What have you made of it? Well, um, it's nothing if not predictable. I mean, this is a line that he's been trotting out since the 2020 election campaign, again, in the midterms, this idea that essentially the, the fate of the American project rests on Joe Biden and his party being returned to power. Uh, so it's not surprising in that sense. I think it's um, particularly galling when you think about the record that he's carved out mm. in the last couple of years um, because of the fact that he talks about we need to finish the job. And the job it is that he wants to finish is not about restoring America to liberal democratic values. I think it's quite the reverse. I was sort of looking back on the past three years, but also um, looking at back at some of the commentary. I thought it was very striking seeing, looking at that piece in the Atlantic by Yasha Munk, where he said that if you hate the woke left, you should vote for Joe Biden. You know, <laughs> If you don't like this woke authoritarianism, you should vote for Joe Biden. And without wanting to pretend that he is some kind of blue haired millennial lunatic, if you look at what he's done over the course of the past few years, it has been to implement not Trumpist authoritarianism that kind of haunts his fever dreams, but this, again, this sort of elitist woke authoritarianism. Mm. His first day in office was where he signed those two executive orders around gender identity, around racial equity. And then over the course of the past few years, he's shown that those aren't the cuddly progressive terms that they seem to be. Um, on every single front, he's kind of pushed this ideology throughout the whole administration, throughout the whole kind of state bureaucracy, essentially. Um, and also he's had a pretty hard line against any of his critics, um, not only demonising people as MAGA Republicans, semi-fascists and so on, but even politicising the justice system. You know, mm. the FBI reportedly being sent after parents who are protesting at school boards and so on. So I think it's another reminder of this, that whilst his whole campaign is always that we need to rescue America from this alleged threat of Trumpist authoritarianism, the authoritarianism, the identity politics, all of that that he's really ushered in over these past few years has done far more to effectively imperil liberal democratic principles. And I think that's something that we've already got to keep front and centre in our minds as this campaign is framed around this ridiculous narrative. Is Yeah, I mean, Ella, compared to Trump, who certainly says a lot of authoritarian things, um, probably has 
some authoritarian thoughts. Biden's the expert, though, isn't he? He's the one who actually gets authoritarianism done, so to speak. <laughs> and and done kind of in very underhanded ways. There's a really great um, article by Sean Collins on Spiked, which looks at the executive order around um, racial equity and, mm. you know, basically explaining that there was no, for such a wide-reaching political move and policy that affects so many different institutions and, uh, you know, different departments in government and all the rest of it, um, there was very little fanfare about this. And, you know, the the policy itself basically means that you discriminate, even though he mm. says equity for all, as Sean Collins points out, it's basically discriminating on the basis of skin colour or yeah. on the basis of things that we're supposed to not discriminate um, around. And, um, you know, Joe Biden's campaign video that he's just released is all very kind of happy clappy as you would um, imagine. It's talking about including everyone. It's all, you know, the, the word inclusive is sort of... Mm. Um, it's thrown in again and again and again in any kind of discussions about both him and Kamala Harris's, um, you know, prospective pitches to um, return to office. And yet it's, you know, the the actual kind of the bones of what his politics are, are not inclusive. It's actually explicitly exclusive. And there's, you know, Sean Collins points out the fact that in all this kind of inclusivity and happy, clappy niceness, there's a really, gla there's there's a kind of glaring omission of the question of class. Mm. And if there's one thing that any you know p person who's interested in American politics at the moment can tell you is that lots of the problems um, with, uh, you know, that the America faces, particularly in relation to the economy, mean that there are very serious class distinctions, there's very serious inequality, and lots of people are genuinely suffering. And for the uh, Biden administration on, under this kind of equity policy to come along and say mm. that, for example, after Hurricane Ian, that there might possibly under this sort of policy of equity be different um, sort of aid given and different help given to people on the basis of their skin yeah. colour. That basically poor whites won't get any help and, because they're white. And they were even it's like remarkable. more, because that was something that was kind of hinted at, but even like the more concrete stuff that's actually happened. I mean, some mm. of this stuff is bunged up in the courts, as you would imagine it, it yeah. would be. But um, COVID relief yeah. being prioritised along the lines of skin colour and gender. Uh, that was both in terms of farmers and small businesses, I believe. That was something that was properly rolled out. Uh, the, his education department is in the process of trying to stop schools and educational institutions from banning males from female sports, for instance. Again, trying essentially destroying women's sports and sex-based rights in education. Um, these are not trivial matters. You know, It's not even just a kind of question of rhetoric. And it is interesting the fact that you know people maybe understandably kind of anti-woke liberals, if you like, kind of thought, look, this is Joe Biden we're talking about. This is not someone who even his record historically is particularly liberal in the kind of traditional yeah, sense. Yeah, voting against gay marriage and all that kind of stuff. All these sorts of things which are kind of liberal shibboleths, if you like, um, even on, you know, kind of uh, away from the quite contested ground of gay marriage, which even, you know, Barack Obama wasn't supportive of until that long ago. But, you know, going back historically, looking at questions of abortion rights and mm. all these different things. He's been on a journey, shall we say. But I don't think um, those people quite anticipated just the pull that woke identity politics has over the entire democratic establishment, even the, the more establishment parts of it, like yeah. Joe Biden. Um, it, it's given them a kind of moral script. It's given them their um, claims to kind of holiness, particularly as they counterpose themselves to Trump. It's, it's, it's allowed them to transform themselves, in the eyes of some people at least, from being um, these discredited figures of the establishment who claim to care about people in the Rust Belt who were struggling, but obviously really didn't. 
acted in every sense against their interests into these proud fighters on behalf of minorities and so on. But it has been really quite stark. I mean, in a sense, even I'm quite surprised the extent to which this agenda around questions of equity, around questions of um, gender, all these kinds of things, which felt very much like kind of faculty lounge buzzwords, have been a core part of how he sees his is how we should govern and yeah. that has been pretty staggering definitely and there's also the question of dissent how biden has dealt with his uh, political enemies because you know there is a element to that where the kind of woke mindset doesn't allow for debate or nuance or disagreement anyone who is on the other side is deplorable and we've seen biden use the security state to the ends of demonizing those people yeah i mean there is you know as much as he likes to throw around words like freedom um, tolerance, liberty, and hint towards the you know, important values that are embedded in, in the constitution. Um, you know, fr- from things like the scandal around his own son's um, activities uh, and getting you know members of the press to deal with that in a certain way, right down to the kind of language that he uses about not just Trump but Trump voters. You know, the Democrats still haven't learned this lesson about sort of slandering people who have a different political opinion to them. It's quite clear that he doesn't know what freedom really means or isn't willing to genuinely take on board that political principle. But, you know, just to follow on from what Tom says, I think part of the sort of zealotry with which the Biden administration has taken on board the sort of yeah, campus language of gender and affirmative action and white privilege and all the rest of it is, I think, a self-conscious move to try and sort of disassociate from the years of policymaking that Biden and Kamala Harris were um, involved in, you know, the kind of the the sort of the stuff that Biden has done politically in relation to crime has been heavily sort of... uh, race loaded. Um, you know, it has Kamala Harris, as we know and pointed out on this podcast, lots of people pointed out already, you know, has been um complicit in and, you know, responsible for locking up huge amounts of black young black men, something that's sort of, you know, we're see- seeing the consequences of today. And yet they are now meant to be the champions of anti-racism, people who are um, you know, to use a bad phrase, whiter than white in terms of their track record. And in comparison with Trump, who, you know, until quite recently was some kind of weird property mogul, reality TV star, has, okay, has had a few years in power and has done some pretty, um, you know, some pretty hairy things and said some things that I don't think any of us agree with. But in terms of a political track record that you should judge someone on, <laughs> to use the awful word problematic, it seems like Biden and Harris are far more problematic and yet they get to just kind of cover themselves with this kind of woke gloss, woke washing um, by using the right kind of buzzwords. But I'm yet to be convinced that they actually believe what they're saying. And I think that's a real problem for um, American citizens because you basically have a kind of game being played at a time when there are some very real problems and crises in America that need to be answered. Yeah, certainly the the whitewashing has been significant. I think one of the things that really, um, you know, struck me as emblematic of that was when I think it was the Washington Post decided they were not going to need a presidential fact checker anymore mm-hmm. when uh, Joe Biden took office after they'd been checking every single, you know, dot and comma of Trump's statements. And obviously Trump is a man that tells a lot of lies. <laughs> he speaks a lot of bullshit. But it's extraordinary the way that the People didn't feel the need to scrutinize Biden in the same way. It was almost as if our guys are in, we can trust them to get on with the job. Yeah. No, that, and that was one of the things which has been so sort of striking and shameful, which is the 
almost nervousness around criticisms of Biden. I mean, he got a very easy ride in, in 2020, I think, even though his obvious shortcomings were there. It'll be interesting to see him actually out on the campaign trail rather than in his basement, which yeah. he was for most of the, the last <laughs> campaign. Um, but still, there was, you know, the, the obvious kind of glaring problems are never really properly addressed. I mean, even when, you know, the Let's Go Brandon stuff happened, you had all these kind of commentators po-facedly <laughs> decrying it as some sort of um, right-wing, scary meme which uh, no one no one civilized should be dealing with it was just even the very fact that this let's go brand and thing surface let's let's remind people if they forget mm. that people were chanting fuck joe biden exactly. and someone you know a commentator said they listen to them saying let's go brandon <laughs> it goes a bit north korea yeah certain, yeah it's the fiery but peaceful process type <laughs> situation and it, and it is it, and there's just so much to scrutinize and yet it doesn't really register whatsoever but also you just think about what's being kind of entrenched here insofar as even though some of this has not really come off but the attempts to clamp down on dissent and mm. the even in a country like america where that's a very difficult thing for the state to do um the attempts to kind of bypass that as we saw even before he was elected by again people on his campaign and so on leaning on big tech to censor what they deem to be dissenting and dangerous misinformation, as well as people from his own campaign organising that letter of ex-security chiefs, which basically set the hairs running on the clampdown on the Hunter Biden story and all of that stuff. There's even the kind of failed attempt to chill us, you know, the disinformation government's board yeah. that was set up and then quickly um, wound down when people pointed out that there is this thing called the First Amendment and it might potentially <laughs> grace against all of that stuff. Uh, this concerted effort he's made against what he's quite um, dishonestly referred to as domestic terrorism as well, you know, introducing a new strategy for that, creating a new unit for that. He hasn't gone as far as actually legislating for it, but effectively lumping together white supremacist terrorists with Trumpists mm. and even with people who don't like the fact that there are mask mandates and critical race theory indoctrination lessons in their kids' schools. I mean, this has been really quite severe. It also lays the groundwork, I think, for a politicization of the justice system yeah. and of the institutions of the state in the other direction. Um, and yet he's never really held accountable for this because he still maintains this sort of halo. What's interesting and what's always worth remembering, I think, going into this is that he still remains unpopular. I mean, he's the, he's the most unpopular president at this point in his term. He's either second only to or sort of on a par with where Trump was mm. last time around. 70% of Americans don't want him to run. And I think that tells you everything about how there's this enormous gap between the attempt to present him as the saver of democracy and to not let any of his flaws shine through for fear of the alternative that you get from the media and the obvious discomfort and distaste for him that exists across the rest of America. But as ever, he's um, blessed with terrible opponents. So that's something that will haunt America for, for at least another election cycle yet. So Diane Abbott, former Shadow Home Secretary, has been suspended from the Labour Party. At the weekend, she wrote an extraordinary letter to The Observer in which she essentially said that Jewish people, Irish people, traveller people can't experience racism. They only experience prejudice. And she even compared um, the kind of prejudice these people experience to gingers um getting abuse in the playground i mean what is what is going on mm. Mm. how could you have hit send on that letter it's 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 not just that it's sort of politically unsound but it was so bizarre yeah. to, to use that kind of comparison but i don't think it was a mistake actually i yeah. think the important thing to note is that this wasn't just a blip 
that it follows the kind of total dismissal mm. of anti-Semitism um, and the, you know, the obsession with literally, you know, almost kind of gatekeeping um, discussions about racism to only be about uh, through the frame of what happens to black people and only to do with slavery and almost playing top trumps with kind of, um, you know, discrimination and, yeah. and oppression throughout history is just straight out of the playbook of the kind of, you know, current um, anti-racist politics of which, you know, the kind of Black Lives Matter narrative around white privilege and all this kind of stuff. It's, you know, become the extent to which you, if you say anything relating to racism that isn't within that narrative, then you are um, supposedly, uh, you're a bigot. That It's yeah. not allowed to be said. Even um, that being said, though, like the, his, the particular historical illiteracy yeah. was fascinating. I mean, because of the fact that she was speaking... Um, explicitly about the experience of the 20th century, talking about how um, in the pre-civil rights era South, you know, mm. Jews and Irish people weren't expected to be at the back of the bus. Talking about um, South Africa and apart apartheid South Africa in a similar sort of fashion. And she did Missing, go right back to slavery as well. Exactly. She was quite historically sweeping. She was, but at the same time, that focus on, you think, what else happened in the mid-20th yeah. century? Mm. And it, it's this incredible omission of the greatest crime of history effectively is mm. fascinating. And it's the sort of thing where, as you say, in a sense, um, I, I don't think this was an act. I mean, first of all, who um, writes a letter, even a first draft as she's trying to claim it is, and it does not re reflect her views categorically at all. That's obviously yeah. not the particular case. Um, but as you say, you can't help but feel that it reflects this broader climate, which is to suggest that um, anti-Semitism is bad, but it's probably being ginned up. And it's not nearly as bad as this form of racism, which is much more historically permeating and stains our history and so on. This is something a little bit different. And it's, again, the grotesqueness of that competition of victimhood is really striking. But also, as, you, as you're suggesting, it's what lays the groundwork for a lot of left anti-Semitism, not to suggest that Diane Abbott herself is, 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 is being anti-Semitic explicitly here or anything like that. It's just to say that that's the same kind of seedbed from which that stuff draws. It's like, yeah. don't be ridiculous. Mm. What are you talking about? And that's that's something where a lot of that hostility sort of germinates from, definitely. And it was interesting, even in response to this controversy, you did immediately have the what aboutery. Mm. Oh, but what about Islamophobia in the Tories? Mm. Oh, what about, you know, it, interestingly, like a lot of the kind of left-wing people who have even criticised Diana, but were keen to talk about actually travellers' experience racism mm. and ignoring the Jewish component. Yeah, and anyone else who wrote a letter like that about any other group of people other than Jewish people would mm. have, who you know, would have been immediately ostracized. There would be no forgiveness whatsoever. I'm, I'm not saying that's a good thing, by the way. It's not a good way to respond to things, but there would have been a completely different response. Yeah, there's a double Instead, standard, certainly. Totally double standard. You had um, lots of prominent commentators, I saw a tweet from Afro Hirsch, come out and say, she's a woman, she made a mistake, she's apologized, can you all back off and it's like you know as, as if this was just a kind of slip of the tongue and you know part of the kind of confusing problem is that there is this horrendous mess within the Labour Party and you know you have people saying that this is just yet another kind of Keir Starmer attacked attack on the left within the party and that the, really this hasn't got anything to do with a problem with anti-Semitism it's just a, a way for him to shuffle off kind of Corbyn's um, acolytes and obviously, <laughs> I'm sure Kirsten was delighted to see that letter published because he has wanted to get rid of people like Diane Abbott in the party. That doesn't, that isn't to have any kind of saying or any kind of consequence on what 
actually was the content of the letter. And I think the the, the thing with the discussion about anti-Semitism within the Labour Party is there is always someone kind of pointing that way. There's always an excuse. Mm. There's always an ulterior motive. There's never any reflection of actually, do you think maybe you just have a problem with understanding and dealing with Jew hatred? Do, do you think maybe you just have some kind of blind spot for it and can you deal with that? Instead, it's always someone else's problem. And Tom, you know, obviously the background is this broader problem with anti-Semitism. Mm. You'd, you'd think that all that the Labour Party has been through, all the, you know, the ECHR investigation, only the second party to go through that after the BNP, mm-hmm. all the turmoil it's caused them. You just think she'd be a bit more sensitive or clued up about this issue and yet still she's blundering in. Still you have the same kind of reaction from the left as Ella was hinting at, which is to say um, there must be some ulterior factional motive for people mm-hmm. talking about um, anti-Semitism. How does it keep happening? Well, I think the problem is it's that it's a fundamental problem not amongst a handful of people who happen to be in the Labour Party on the left of the Labour Party. It's a, it's a fundamental problem in the left in general, which mm. is to say that there is this strand fueled by identity politics, fueled by a preoccupation with Israel to the you know exclusion of all other geopolitical conflicts, obsession with this hierarchy of victimhood, um, an irritation with um, mention of anti-Semitism, both historically and today. That's one thing that in when Corbyn was still in charge, you would find yourself in radio studios with people and you would have, say, the chief rabbi coming out and making statements about how left anti-Semitism was a problem and the bristling that would yeah. happen that would never happen if it was directed at any other group of people who were speaking about the ways in which they felt that they had been suffering from racism and racial discrimination. This is something which is a very clear tendency. It's not just Diane Abbott. It's not just the handful of people who've been kicked out of the Labour Party, um, or prominent people, I should say. There's a lot of people who've been kicked out of the Labour Party at the lower levels for indulging in these kinds of attitudes. It's just there. And I think in many respects, what um, shocked a lot of people who otherwise were kind of allies of Diana, but you saw many people actually quite quick to condemn her comments, if not to condemn her personally, um, is that they saw in kind of unvarnished, unthinking, what a lot of them actually think. Um, I don't think they've ever really seen it stated as starkly and as ridiculously, but this is essentially what they think, that there is this hierarchy of racism, that there is this hierarchy of, of victimhood. And the problem with that hierarchy is that because it places Jews at the top of it, you end up rehabilitating some very ugly ideas effectively about Jewish control, about Jewish privilege and so on. I'm not saying these people have done this explicitly themselves, but it shouldn't surprise you that, again, you see these attitudes kind of surfacing and so on when you do have this really ugly, really divisive competition of victimhood at the heart of your quote-unquote anti-racist politics. It's, It's... when you think about it, it's inevitably going to rehabilitate these kinds of anti-Semitic tropes. I think the most depressing thing about it is that the, it was in response to an article and the original article was was really actually saying that part of the problem with doing these kind of oppression Olympics, particularly in relation to racism, and not taking into account, you know, the fact of history that, you know, in Britain there used to be signs up that said, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, that, there, mm. that you know, that actually there was there was a lot wrong and it what didn't just happen to one group of people is that it was a kind of a call for solidarity. It mm. was saying that actually if we go down this kind of route of identity politics and sectioning ourselves off and treating, our, treating each other in a kind of hostile fashion on the basis of suspicion around... The things we can't change like our skin colour, then there's no chance for solidarity. And then you have Diane Abbott come in and just prove how corrosive and awful 
that is. And I think we should, you know, actually people should go back and read the original article and and think about what all this kind of um, this horrible kind of divisive, genuine divisiveness um, around identity politics and, and most importantly around anti-Semitism does for any kind of social solidarity. Australian comic legend Barry Humphreys has died aged 89. He became world famous for his characters Dame Edna Everidge and cultural attaché Les Patterson. Joining me to discuss his life, his significance, his controversies is the comedian Simon Evans. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you, Fraser. Nice to see you. Simon, let's start off by talking by the reaction to his death. I think it's fair to say that he has received near universal praise. I mean, what does it say about him that even in these divided times, he seems to have united everyone in his favour? The, the controversy that he attracted towards the very end of his life has almost no bearing at all on the, the, the weight of his work, 50 years or so uh, of creativity. Um, unusually, he came to like proper international levels of fame quite late in life, having been uh, quite a, a, an exceptional fringe performer and uh, uh, almost on the border of being a dilettante, really, would, would sort of engage in uh, Dada-ish art activities and so on as, and um, uh, help script cartoons in private eye. I mean, he was one of those people who was a real... Um, I, I think I, you'd think you could reasonably call him a Renaissance man in comedy terms, mm. you know, uh, and for throughout the 60s and 70s, um, he he lived very much according to his own rules, um, but gradually achieved a level of like yeah proper international celebrity in the eighties and nineties with Dame Edna Everidge um, that did cut through a lot more than most comedy of that time, which had begun to be I think after like nineteen eighty was kind of year zero for comedy a little bit like it was with music after punk. Uh, it became very tribal. Young people had their comedy. We had the young ones Rick and Aidan, and we had. The, the comic strip presents and, and a lot of our comedy seemed to be angry with the Tory government. And then there were a lot of older people who preferred safe sitcoms with Felicity Kendall and Richard Bryars, you know, <laughs> and people who wrote that comedy, the young ones like Ben Elton, later confessed that they found it all baffling and they loved Eric Morecambe as much as they ever loved Alexis Sale. But Barry Humphreys just seemed to slice through all of that. He, he, he didn't seem to be ours or theirs. He seemed to be everyone's to enjoy. He was absolutely filthy. He was capable of planting the, the most disreputable punchlines in your head just with a sort of curl of his lipstick mouth, you know, without even having to articulate them. But his his command of the language as well was extraordinary. I mean, he bequeathed an entire Australian ed edition of the Profanosaurus single-handedly, you know, uh, uh, before he even became famous, really. Lots of expressions which we think of as being Australian uh, slang are actually of his creation, you know. And um, he was a very, very bright, fertile, imaginative, enthusiastic, vivacious, and constantly curious. And, and he just had all the, the, the uh, attributes you would hope that a comedian would have. But, you know, I'm afraid quite often ambition and packageability, you know, have, have trumped a lot of those qualities um, throughout the, you know, throughout the century, not just recently, and he was one that got through and and survived intact and and presented his his uh, his his own sense of humour informed everything that he did. He did it to make himself laugh and to create mischief, and I think people just loved him for it. Yeah, you you wrote brilliantly um, in your spikes column this week that you know this he wasn't someone who punched up or down or sideways in any particular direction. 
there wasn't necessarily a political point to be made. It's, it's just all about the humour. Which is, of course, in itself, you could argue, a political point, which <laughs> is to say, don't be so quick to think that everything is about good and bad and evil. And, you know, the he was like a sort of comedy uh, reminder, a memento mori, that he was kind of, he would have celebrities and the great and the good on his couch. And he was kind of saying to them, remember, you two must die, mm. you know, that you are, you are, um, you know, your blood and sinew and muscle and shit, just like the rest of us. And, uh, and, and, and it stinks as badly, you know, there's a great tradition of that in, in quite often quite sort of, uh, marginalized literature and cartooning and art, which he collected as well, which demonstrated it. And I think he was, he, you know, he was like some leering kind of just, he was like a, a you could say, uh, a Yorick, you know, almost, you know, the, the skull leering at Hamlet from the grave, you know, he, he had that kind of capacity to just reduce petty differences to, uh, you know, the, the, the noisy squabbles that they were. And, and he was a great leveler in that regard. And um, as I say, I think that is in itself kind of a political message, not a party political one, but a reminder that, you know, it's not always obvious who has the upper hand in any given situation and, and you can wrest it from these people. And let's move on to talk a bit about the controversy. Um, it was in 2016 when he made his most forthright comments on the trans issue, the most toxic issue of our of, a, of our times. Do you want to tell us a bit about that and, and what some of the fallout was? Yes. I mean, I remember it at the time and uh, quite a few sort of left-wing newspapers and so on leapt on him and, oh my God, Barry Humphreys has been disgraceful. He's uttered controversial comments. As somebody said recently, yeah, the word controversial is itself a signaling device now. If mm. you can't say that something's wrong, such as J.K. Rowling, you refer to her as controversial in order to signal that you are an ally of those people who are upset by her, even though, you know, what, what exactly is the controversy? You, you don't have to explain it. But he was asked essentially whether he believed, you know, obviously as somebody, as a man who'd made his, his career in drag, you might say, for shorthand, um, you know, what he thought of the trans thing. And he just, I think his his views were, well, the most famous word came out was mutilation, that he regarded sex change surgery as a, an illusion or a delusion and, and a mistake, and one which was going to encourage people to uh, endure painful, difficult discomfort uh, uh, to no great advantage, and that it was all, uh, you know, uh, a crock of, of lies. Well, without wanting to get drawn into that controversy myself, I think those <laughs> views were probably much more widely held and certainly within his demographic, 85-year-old men who had always been actually quite conservative in a funny way in a lot of his views, or at least traditional. You know, he upheld traditional values, such as being interested in collecting art. And, and he was a bibliophile with books going back to the 16th and 17th century. You know, he, he was not like, a, 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 you know, a, a carbon copy progressive. He had his own views and he had his own opinions and he had formed them after a lifetime of thinking. And of course, it was it was as these things always are weaponized much more by the people who perceive themselves to have been hurt by those comments. They amplify them vastly more than anyone who might have thought, "Oh, Barry is an ally on our side. Let's quote Barry on this issue," you know, in order to demonstrate that trans is a, is a is a cult. Instead, of course, it is the trans people themselves who would like everyone to see just how beastly famous people are being to them in order to enhance the proposition that they are the victims of society rather than, you know, uh, people who are, we would all quite happily let go their own way if they would just leave us in peace. <laughs> and, and infamously, he the Barry Award, which was named after him at the uh, Melbourne International Comedy Festival, that was scrapped, um, at least in part due to these, these comments, They've been looking a bit silly this week, haven't they? They haven't quite worked out how to position themselves on his 
uh, around his death. I felt that they had an opportunity. But what essentially happened was there was an award. Barry, Barry Humphreys and Peter Cook uh, were the joint sort of celebrity launch of the whole festival back in 1987, I think it was. And as a result of that, he was honoured in the, the festival's chief award, equivalent to what was used to be the Perrier in Edinburgh. And that was in about 2000. And then, yes, um, I think it was awarded to Hannah Gadsby at one point, And she spoke bitterly about, you know, her, her ambivalence. She is a, a lesbian comedian. I say, honestly, I, I don't honestly, I don't say this in a kind of comedian kind of way, but she doesn't seem to me to be operating as a comedian. She seems to me to be operating as a sort of public intellectual commenting on the rights and wrongs of what stand-up comedy can be expected to achieve. But anyway, she won that award. She complained about having, you know, Barry Humphrey's name attached to it. And a couple of years later, it was whipped off. Mm. And um, and I thought that was disgraceful. And apparently, it did hurt him very much. As I, I said, it, he put Melbourne on the map as a comedy proposition. Um, it, it wasn't simply that he'd given his name to an award like David Frost might do or something. He really did virtually invent the whole field of Australian comedy. You know, it would be utterly different without him. And um, and they had an opportunity at the end of that festival to you know, make their peace with him. And instead, they did nothing, absolutely nothing. I mean, traditionally, when somebody great in your industry, in the theatre or whatever dies, at the very least, you dim the lights, there might be a round of applause. If you can't be sure that uh, around a, a minute silence will be observed, you do something. To re They did absolutely nothing. And then when it was over, they put out a tweet going, anyway, now the festival's over, we, we better have a look and see what we can do in order to what Well, no, I'm sorry, it's too late by now. You had a chance you know, to, um, to, to reach out and, uh, and make some sort of peace and you fail to do so. So I think they have really quite severely fouled that up. But I'm hearing a lot of reports from comedians who are over there. I've never played the Melbourne Festival myself, but it used to be a lot of comedians' favourite festival year-round. You know, it's obviously difficult when you've got a wife and children to go away for a month at a time, but a lot of comedians who are in that lucky position to be able to do so have always said it was the most friendly, the, the best audiences, just a great sense of community. I'm hearing a lot of reports now that it is a very divided place and that, and that comedians who are, this is the weird thing about the supposed inclusivity of, the, of this kind of mindset. It is not inclusive. It makes, it creates a very hostile environment for anyone who's not with the program, you know, far more, I suspect, than, than Barry Humphrey's name on an award ever did for anyone who felt his comments about trans were unacceptable. Well, let's hope that um, Barry Humphreys is having the last laugh, I think. I think in five or 10 years' time, who knows? It's hard to say, isn't it? There are great writers and poets and so on who are all forgotten. But I think it's very unlikely that Humphrey's legacy will be forgotten in my lifetime. It, it was Im immense. It, 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 it changed the shape. Uh, it changed the geography of comedy. And, and uh, I mean, a whole genre of kind of tongue-in-cheek interview programs and formats are entirely based on him. Mm. You know, and uh, as I say, there's a whole vocabulary. And um, I, I think it's very unlikely that that any one of the people who who were a signature to his um, being removed will a signatory will, will 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 survive his fame. Simon Evans, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday, and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.